Introduction of Baseball, How to Become a Player. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Caveat. Baseball, How to Become a Player by John Montgomery Ward. Introduction, An Inquiry into the Origin of Baseball, with a brief sketch of its history. It may, or it may not be, a serious reflection upon the accuracy of history that the circumstances of the invention of the first ball are enveloped in some doubt. Herodotus attributes it to the Lydians, but several other writers unite in conceding to a certain beautiful lady of Cocaria, and Gala by name, the credit of having made a ball for the purpose of pastime. Several passages in Homer rather sustain this latter view, and, therefore, with the weight of evidence and to the glory of women, we too shall adopt this theory. Anagala did not apply for letters patent, but, whether from goodness of heart or inability to keep a secret, she lost no time in making known her invention and explaining its uses. Homer then relates how All the green mead the sporting virgins play, Their shining veils unbound along the skies, Tossed and re-tossed the ball incessant flies. And this is the first ball game on record, though it is perhaps unnecessary to say that it was not yet baseball. No other single accident has ever been so productive of games as that invention. From the day when the Facian maiden started the ball rolling down to the present time, it has been continuously in motion, and as long as children love play and adults feel the need of exercise and recreation, it will continue to roll. It has been known in all lands and at one time or another been popular with all peoples. The Greeks and the Romans were great devotees of ball-play. China was noted for her players. In the courts of Italy and France, we are told, it was in a special favour, and Fitzstephen, writing in the 13th century, speaks of the London schoolboys playing at the celebrated game of ball. For many centuries no bat was known, but in those games requiring the ball to be struck, the hand alone was used. In France there was early played a species of handball. To protect the hands, thongs were sometimes bound about them, and this eventually furnished the idea of the racket. Strutt thinks a bat was first used in golf, camber called bandy-ball. This was similar to the boys' game of shinny, or as it is now more elegantly known, polo, and the bat used was bent at the end, just as now. The first straight bats were used in the old English club game called club-ball. This was simply fungo-hitting, in which one player tossed the ball in the air and hit it, as it fell, to others who caught it, or sometimes it was pitched to him by another player. Concerning the origin of the American game of baseball, there exists considerable uncertainty. A correspondent of Porter's Spirit of the Times, as far back as 1856, begins a series of letters on the game by acknowledging his utter inability to arrive at any satisfactory conclusion upon this point and a writer of recent date introduces a research into the history of the game with a frank avowal that he has only succeeded in finding a remarkable lack of literature on the subject. In view of its extraordinary growth and popularity as our national game, the author deems it important that its true origin should, if possible, be ascertained, and he has therefore devoted this inquiry more space than it might at first seem necessary. In 1856, within a dozen years from the time of the systemization of the game, the number of clubs in the metropolitan district and the enthusiasm attending their matches began to attract particular attention. The fact became apparent it was surely superseding the English game of cricket, 
and the adherents of the latter game looked with ill-conceived jealousy on the rising upstart. There were then, as now, persons who believed that everything good and beautiful in the world must be of English origin, and these at once felt the need of a pedigree for the new game. Some one of them discovered that in certain features it resembled an English game called Rounders, and it immediately was announced to the American public that baseball was only the English game transposed. This theory was not admitted by the followers of the new game, but unfortunately they were not in a position to emphasise the denial. One of the strongest advocates of the rounded theory, an Englishman born himself, was the writer for an outdoor sports on the principal metropolitan publications. In this capacity, and as the author of a number of independent works of his own, and the writer of the baseball articles in several encyclopedias and books of sport, he has lost no opportunity to advance his pet theory. Subsequent writers have, blindly it would seem, followed his lead until now we find it asserted on every hand as a fact established by some indisputable evidence, and yet there has never been adduced a particle of proof to support this conclusion. While the author of this work entertains the greatest respect for that gentleman, both as a journalist and a man, and believes that baseball owes to him a monument of gratitude for that brave fight he has always made against the enemies and abuses of the game, he yet considers this point as to the game's origin worthy of further investigation, and he still regards it as an open question. When was baseball first played in America? The first contribution which in any way refers to the antiquity of the game is the first official report of the National Association in 1858. This declares, the game of baseball has long been a favourite and popular recreation in this country, but it is only within the last 15 years that any attempt has been made to systemise and regulate the game. The italics are inserted to call attention to the fact that in the memory of men of that day, baseball had been played a long time prior to 1845, so long that the 15 years of systemised play was referred to by an only. Colonel Jazz Lee, elected an honorary member of the Knickerbocker Club in 1846, said that he had often played the same game when a boy, and at that time he was a man of sixty or more years. Mr. William F. Ladd, my informant, one of the original members of the Knickerbockers, says that he never in any way doubted Colonel Lee's declaration, because he was a gentleman, eminently worthy of belief. Dr. Oliver Wendell Holmes, several years since, said to the reporter of a Boston paper, that baseball was one of the sports of his college days at Harvard, and Dr. Holmes graduated in 1829. Mr. Charles DeBost, the catcher and captain of the old Knickerbockers, played baseball on Long Island 50 years ago, and it was the same game which the Knickerbockers afterward played. In the absence of any recorded proof as to the antiquity of the game, testimony such as the foregoing becomes important, and it might be multiplied to an unlimited extent. Another noticeable point is the belief in the minds of the game's first organisers that they were dealing with a purely American production, and the firmness of this conviction is evidenced by the everything they said and did. An examination of the speeches and proceedings of the conventions, of articles in the daily and other periodical publications, of the poetry which the game of that early day inspired, taken in connection with the declarations of the members of the first club still living, will show this vein of belief running all the way through. The idea that baseball owed its origin to any foreign game was not only not entertained, but indignantly repudiated by the men of that time, and in pursuing his investigations, the writer has discovered that this feeling still exists in a most emphatic form. In view of the foregoing, we may safely say that baseball was played in America as early, at least, as the beginning of the century. 
It may be instructive now to inquire as to the antiquity of the old English game for which baseball is said to have sprung, deferring for the present the consideration of its resemblance to baseball. What proof have we of its venerable existence? Looking primarily to the first edition of old English authorities on outdoor sports, I have been unable to find any record that such a game as rounders was known. I have been unfortunate in my researches, therefore, though I have exhausted every available source of information, I have not discovered any mention of it. The first standard English writer to speak of rounders is Stonehenge in his Manual of Sports, London, 1856. Since then, almost every English work on outdoor sports describes the old, with an emphasis, English game of rounders, and in the same connection declares it to be the germ of the American baseball. And yet, curiously enough, not one of them gives any authority even for dubbing it old, much less for calling it the origin of our game. But in 1856, baseball had been played here for many years. It had already attracted attention as a popular sport, and by 1860 was known in slightly differing forms all over the country. To all these later English writers, therefore, its existence and general principles must have been familiar, and it is consequently remarkable in view of their claim they have given us no more particulars of the game of rounders. Are we to accept this assertion without reserve? when an investigation would seem to indicate that baseball is really the older game. If this English game was then a common schoolboy sport, as now claimed, it seems almost incredible it should have escaped the notice of all the writers of the first half of the century. And yet no sooner does baseball become famous as the American game than English writers discover that there is an old popular English game from which it was descended. Many of the games which the earlier writers describe are extremely simple as compared with rounders, yet the latter game is entirely overlooked. But upon what ground have these later writers based their assumption? Many doubtless have simply followed the writings from this side of the Atlantic. Others have been misled by their ignorance of the actual age of our game, for there are even many Americans who think baseball was introduced by the Knickerbocker, and following clubs, a few with the proverbial insular idea, have concluded that baseball must be of English origin, if for another reason, because it ought to be. It is not my intention to declare the old game of round as a myth. There is ample living testimony to the, its existence as early as perhaps 1830, but that it was a popular English game before baseball was played here, I am not yet ready to believe. Before we accept the statement that baseball is only a species of glorified rounders, we should demand some proof that that is really the older game. In this connection, it will be important to remember that there were two English games called rounders, but entirely distinct the one from the other. Johnson's Dictionary, edition of 1876, describes the first and presumably the older as similar to fives or handball, where the second is a game supposed to be allied to baseball. Fives is one of the oldest games, and if it or a similar game was called rounders, it would require something more than a mere occurrence of the name in some old writing to prove the game referred to is the rounders as now played. And if this cannot be shown, why might we not claim, with as much reason as the other theory has been maintained, that the old English game of rounders is only a poor imitation of the older American game of baseball. Up to this point we have waived the question of resemblance between the two games, but let us now inquire what are the points of similarity. Are these, after all, so striking as to warrant the assumption that one game was derived from the other, no matter which may be shown to be the older? In each there are sides. The ball is tossed to the striker who hits it with a bat, he is out if the ball so hit is caught. He runs to different bases in succession, and may be put out if hit by the ball when between the bases. 
but with this the resemblance ceases. In baseball, nine men constitute a side, while in rounders there may be any number over three. In baseball there are four bases, including home, and the field is a diamond. In rounders the bases are five in number and the field is a pentagon in shape. There is a fair and foul hit in baseball, while in rounders no such thing is known. In rounders if a ball is struck out and missed, or if hit so that it falls back of the striker, he is out. While in baseball the ball must be missed three times and the third one caught in order to retire the striker, and a foul, unless caught like any other ball, has no effect and is simply declared dead. In rounders the score is reckoned by counting one for each base made. Some of the authorities say the run is completed when the runner has reached the base next on the left of the one started from. In baseball, one point is scored only when the runner has made every base in succession and returned to the one from which he started. In rounders, every player on the side must be put out before the other side can come in, while in baseball, from time immemorial, the rule has been three out, all out. The distinctive feature of rounders, and the one which gives it its name, is that when all of the side except two have been retired, one of the two remaining may call for the rounder, that is, he is allowed three hits at the ball, and if in any one of these he can make the entire round of the bases. All the players of his side are reinstated as batters. No such feature as this was ever heard of in baseball, yet, as said, it is the characteristic which gives the rounders its name, and any derivation of that game must certainly have preserved it. If the point of resemblance were confined solely to these two games, it would prove nothing except that the boys' ideas as well as men's often run in the same channels. The very ancient game of bandy-ball has its double in the oldest Persian sport, and the records of literary and mechanical invention present some curious coincidences. But as a matter of fact, every point common to these two games was known, and used long before in other popular sports. That the ball was tossed to the bat to be hit was a true of a number of other games. Among them were club-ball, tip-cat, and cricket, and both of the latter also in stool-ball bases were run. And in Tipcat, a game of much greater antiquity than either baseball or rounders, the runner was out if hit by the ball when between bases. In all of these games, the striker was out if the ball when hit was caught. Indeed, a comparison will show that there are as many features of the baseball common to cricket or Tipcat as there are to rounders. In view then of these facts, that the points of similarity are not distinctive, and that the points of difference are decidedly so, I can see no reason in analogy to say that one game is descended from the other, no matter which may be shown to be the older. There was a game known in some parts of this country, fifty or more years ago, called Town Ball. In 1831, a club was regularly organised in Philadelphia to play the game, and it is recorded that the first day of practice enough members were not present to make up Town Ball, and so a game of Two Old Cat was played. This town ball was so nearly like rounders that one must have been the prototype of the other, but town ball and baseball were two very different games. When this same town ball club decided in 1860 to adopt baseball instead, many of its principal members resigned, so great was the enmity to the latter game. Never until recently was the assertion made that baseball was a development of town ball, and it could not have been done had the writers looked up all the historical facts. The latest attempt to fasten an English tab on the American game is noteworthy. Not content to stand by the theory that our game has sprung from the English rounders, it is now intimated that baseball itself, the same game, and under the same name, is of English origin. To complete the chain, 
It is now only necessary for some English writers to tell us that in 1845 a number of English gentlemen sojourning in New York organised a club called the Knickerbockers and introduced to Americans the old English game of baseball. This new departure has not yet gained much headway, but it must be noticed on account of the circumstances of its appearance. The edition of Chambers' Encyclopedia, just out, in its article on baseball, said that the game was mentioned in Miss Austen's Northanger Abbey, written about 1798, and leaves us to infer that it was the same game that we now know by that name. It was not necessary to go into the realm of fiction to find this ancient use of the name. A writer to the London Times in 1874 pointed out that in 1748 the family of Frederick, Prince of Wales, were represented as engaged in a game of baseball. Miss Austin refers to baseball as played by the daughters of Mrs. Morland, the eldest of whom was 14. In Elaine's Rural Sports, London, 1852, in an introduction to ball games in general occurs this passage. There are few of us of either sex, but have engaged in baseball since our majority. Within all these cases the same game was meant matters not, and it is not established by the mere identity of names. Base, as a meaning of a place of safety, dates its origin back from the game of prisoner's base, long before anything in the shape of baseball or rounders, so that any game of ball in which bases were a feature would likely to be known by that name. The fact that in these three instances in which we find the name mentioned, it is always a game for girls or women, would justify the suspicion it was not always the same game, and that it in any way resembled our game is not to be imagined. Baseball in its mildest form is essentially a robust game, and it would require an elastic imagination to conceive of little girls possessed of physical powers such as the play demands. Besides, if the English baseball of 1748, 1798 and 1852 were the same as our baseball, we would have been informed of that fact long ago, and it would never have been necessary to attribute the origin of our game to rounders. And when in 1874 the American players were introducing baseball to Englishmen, the patriotic Britain would not have said, as he did then, that our game was only rounders with the rounder left out, but he would at once have told us that baseball itself was an old English game. But this latest theory is altogether untenable, and only entitled to consideration on account of the authority under which it was put forth. In a little book called Jolly Games for Happy Homes, London, 1875, dedicated to wee little babies and grown-up ladies, there is a described game called Baseball. It is very similar in its essence to our game, and is probably a reflection of it. It is played by a number of girls in a garden or field. Having chosen sides, the leader of the outside tosses the ball to one of the inns, who strikes it with the hand and then scampers for the trees, posts, or other objects previously designated as bases. Having recovered the ball, the scouts, or those on the outs, give chase and try to hit the fleeing one at a time when she is between bases. There must be some other means not stated for putting out the side. The ability to throw a ball with accuracy is vouchsafed to a few girls, and if the change of innings depended upon this, the game, like a Chinese play, would probably never end. It is described, however, as a charming pastime, and notwithstanding its simplicity, it's doubtless a modern English conception of our national game. To recapitulate briefly, the assertion that baseball is descended from rounders is pure assumption, unsupported even by proof that the latter game antedates the former, and unjustified by any line of reasoning based upon the likeness of the games. The other attempt to declare baseball itself an out-and-out -out English game is scarcely worthy of serious consideration. But if baseball neither sprung from rounders nor taken bodily from another English game, what is its origin? 
I believe it to be the fruit of the inventive genius of the American boy. Like our system of government, it is an American revolution, and while, like that, it has doubtless been affected by foreign associations, it is nonetheless distinctly our own. Place in the hands of a youth a bat and a ball, and they will invent games of ball. And that these will be affected by other familiar games, and in many respects resemble them, goes without saying. The tradition among the earliest players of the game now living is that the root from which came our present baseball was the old-time American game of catball. This was the original American ball game, and the time when it was not played here is beyond the memory of any living man. There were two varieties of the game, the first called One Old Cat, or One Cornered Cat, and the other Two Old Cat. In One Old Cat there were a batter, pitcher, catcher, and fielders. There were no sides, and generally no bases to be run, but in every other respect the game was like baseball. The batter was out if he missed three times, and the third strike was caught or if the ball when hit was caught on the fly or first bound. When the striker was put out, the catcher went in to bat, the pitcher to catch, and the first fielder to pitcher, and so on again, when the next striker was retired. The order of succession had been being established when the players went on the field, by each calling out a number as one, two, three, etc. One being the batter, two being the catcher, three the pitcher, four the first fielder, etc. Thus, each in order secured a turn at bat, the coveted position. Sometimes when the party was larger, more than one striker was allowed, and in that case, not only to give the idle striker something to do, but to offer extra chance of putting him out, one or more bases were laid out, and having hit the ball, he was forced to run to these. If he could be hit with the ball at any time when he was between bases, he was out, and he was forced to be back to the striker's position in time to take his turn at bat. This made him take chances in running. No count was kept of runs, Two old cats differed from one old cat in having two batters at opposite stations, as in the old English stool ball and the much more modern cricket, while the fielders divided so that half faced one batter and half the other. From one old cat to baseball there's a short step. It was only necessary to choose sides, and then the count of runs made by each would form the natural test of superiority. That baseball actually did develop in this way was the generally accepted theory for many years. In 1869, an article in The Nation from A.H. Sedwick, commenting upon the features of baseball and cricket as exemplifying national characteristics, said, To those other objectors who would contend that our explanation supposes a gradual modification of the English into the American game, while it is a matter of common learning that the latter is of no foreign origin but the lineal descent of that favourite of boyhood, too old cat, we would say that, fully agreeing with them as to the historical fact, we have always believed it to be so clear as not need further evidence, and that for the purposes of this article, the history of the matter is out of place. Without going further into consideration that might be greatly prolonged, I reassert my belief that our national game is a home production. In the field of outdoor sports, the American boy is easily capable of devising his own amusements, and until some proof is adduced that baseball is not his invention, I protest against this systematic effort to rob him of his dues. The recorded history of the game may be sketched briefly, but it is not the object here to give a succinct history. In 1845, a number of gentlemen who had been in the habit for several years of playing baseball for recreation determined to form themselves into a permanent organisation under the name of the Knickerbocker Club. They drew up a constitution and bylaws, and scattered through the latter to be found the first written rules of the game. They little thought that the beginning would develop into the present vast system of organised baseball. They were guilty of no crafty changes of any foreign game. There was no incentive for that. 
They recorded the rules of the game as they remembered them from boyhood and as they found them in vogue at that time. For six years the club regularly played at the Elysian Field, the two nines being made up from all the members present. From 1851 other clubs began to be organised and we find the Washington, Gotham into which the Washington was merged, Eagle, Empire, Putnam, Baltic, Union, Mutual, Excelsior, Atlantic, Eckford and many other clubs following in the space of a few years. In Philadelphia, town ball was the favourite pastime and kept out baseball for some time, while in Boston, the local New England game, as played by the Olympic, Elm Tree and Green Mountain Clubs, deferred the introduction of baseball, or as it was called, the New York game, until 1857. Baseball grew rapidly in favour. The field was ripe. America needed a live outdoor sport, and this game exactly suited the national temperament. It required all the manly qualities of activity, endurance, pluck and skill peculiar to cricket, and was immeasurably superior to that game in exciting features. Though a dash, spirit and variety, it required only a couple of hours to play a game, developed by American brains, it was flaw to us, and we took it with all the enthusiasm peculiar to our nature. In 1857 a convention of delegates from 16 clubs located in and around New York and Brooklyn was held, and a uniform set of rules drawn up to govern the play of all the clubs. In 1858, a second general convention was held at which 25 clubs were represented. A committee was appointed to formulate a constitution and bylaws for a permanent organisation, and in accordance with this, the National Association of Baseball Players was duly organised. The game now made rapid strides. It was no boy's sport, for no one under 21 years of age could be a delegate. Each year, a committee of men having practical knowledge of the game revised the playing rules so that these were always kept abreast of the time. During 1858, a series of three games between pick nines from New York and Brooklyn was played on the fashion course Long Island. The public interest in these games was very great, and the local feeling ran high. The series, which terminated in favour of New York 2-1, to one, attracted general attention to the game. In 1861, a similar game was played called the Silver Ball Match, on account of the trophy, a silver ball, offered by the New York Clipper. This time, Brooklyn won easily, and it is said that some 15,000 people were present. At the second annual meeting of the National Association in 1860, 70 clubs had delegates present, representing New York, Brooklyn, Boston, Detroit, New Haven, Newark, Troy, Albany, Buffalo, and other cities. During this year, the first extended trip was taken by the Excelsior Club of Brooklyn, going to Albany, Troy, Buffalo, Rochester and Newburgh. All the expenses of the trip were paid from the treasury of the travelling club, for there were no enclosed grounds in those days, and no questions as to the percentage or guarantee were yet agitating the clubs and the public. The Excelsiors won every game, and their skilful display and gentlemanly appearance did much to popularise the games in the cities they visited. Already in 1860, the game was coming to be recognised as our national pastime, and there were clubs in all the principal cities. Philadelphia had forsaken her town ball, and Boston's New England game, after a hard fight, gave way to the New York game. Washington, Baltimore, Troy, Albany, Syracuse, Rochester, Buffalo, all had their champion teams. From Detroit to New Orleans, and from Portland, Maine, to far off San Francisco, the grand game was the reigning outdoor sport. With the outbreak of the Civil War came a general suspension of play in the different cities, though the records of occasional games in camp show that the boys did not entirely forget the old love. In 1865, the friendly contest resumed, though the call of the roll showed many absent who had never been known to miss a game. More than one of those who went out in 61 had proven his courage on the crimson field.
During the seasons of 65, 66 and 67, amateur baseball, so-called, was at the height of its glory. At the annual convention of the National Association in 66, a total of 202 clubs from 17 states and the District of Columbia were represented. Besides, there were present delegates from the Northwestern and Pennsylvania Associations, representing in addition over 200 clubs. In 1867, the trip of the Nationals of Washington was the first visit of an Eastern club to the West, and helped greatly to spread the reputation of the game. For a few years, however, certain baneful influences had crept into the game and now began to work out their legitimate effect. The greatest of these evils was in the amount of gambling on the results of games. With so much money at stake, the public knew that players would be tampered with, and when finally its suspicions were confirmed, it refused further to patronise the games. The construction of enclosed grounds and the charge of admission proved another danger. No regular salaries were paid, so that the players who were depending on a share of the gate arranged to win and lose a game in order that the deciding contest might draw well. Doubtless there were more of these things existing in the public imagination than in actual fact, but distrust once aroused, there was no faith left for anything or anybody. Very early in the history of the association, the practice prevailed among certain clubs of offering inducements to crack players in order to secure them as members. The clubs which could offer this grew disproportionately strong, and in the face of continual defeat, the weaker clubs were losing interest. In 1859, a rule was made forbidding the participation in any matches of paid players. But it was so easily evaded that it was a dead letter. In 1866, the rule was reworded, but with no improved effect. And in 1868, the National Association decided as the only way out of this dilemma to recognise the professional class of players. By making this distinction, it would be no longer considered a disgrace for an amateur to be beaten by a professional nine. For the professional, the change was most beneficial. It legitimised their occupation and left them at liberty to pursue openly and honourably what they had been before been forced to follow under false colours. The proud record of the Cincinnati Reds in 69 proved that professional baseball could be honestly and profitably conducted, and from that time forth it was an established institution. But with the introduction of professionalism, there began a great competition for players, and this brought in a new evil in the form of revolvers, or as they were sometimes called, shooting stars. Players under contract with one club yielded to the temptations of larger offers and repudiated the first agreements. It became evident that a closer organisation was necessary to deal with these affairs. In 1871, the professional and amateur organisations concluded to dissolve partnership. Two distinct associations were formed and the first regular championship contests were engaged in by the professional association. After a few years, the amateur national association passed out of existence. In 1876, eight clubs of the Professional National Association formed an independent body calling themselves the National League, and this is the present senior baseball organisation. In 1881, a new body of professional clubs, the American Association, entered the field and is now, with the National League, one of the controlling factors of the game. There have been a number of other baseball associations formed from time to time. But unable to compete with the larger leagues and despoiled of their best players, they have been forced to withdraw. Under a new regime, there are at present quite a number of these minor organisations, and some of them are in most flourishing condition. In 1882, the National League, American Association and the Northwestern League, entered in what was called the Triparty Agreement, which the following year was developed into the National Agreement. 
the parties to this document, which has become the Lex Suprema in baseball affairs, are now primarily the National League and the American Association. And it regulates the terms of players' contracts and the period for negotiations. It provides a fine of up to $500 upon the club violating and disqualifies the player for the ensuing season. It prescribes the formula necessary to make a legal contract. The clubs of each association are to respect the reservations, expulsions, blacklistments and suspensions of the clubs of the other. It declares that no club shall pay any salary in excess of $2,000. Finally, it provides for a board of arbitration consisting of three duly accredited representatives from each association to convene annually and in addition to all matters that may be specially referred to them to have sole, exclusive and final jurisdiction of all disputes and complaints arising under and all interpretations of this agreement. It shall also decide all disputes between the associations or between club members of one association and club members of the other. To this main agreement are tacked articles of qualified admission by which the minor baseball associations, for a consideration and upon certain conditions, are conceded certain privileges and protections. These articles are an agreement between the League and the American Association, party of the first part, and the minor leagues are the party of the second part. The most important feature of the national agreement unquestionably is the provision according to the club members of the privilege of reserving a stated number of players. No other club of any association under the agreement dares engage any player so reserved. To this rule, more than any other thing, does baseball as, as a business owe its present substantial standing. By preserving intact the strength of the team from year to year, it places the business of baseball on a permanent basis and thus offers security to the investment of capital. The greatest evil with which the business has of recent years had to contend is the unscrupulous methods of some of its managers. Knowing no such thing as professional honour, these men are ever ready to benefit themselves regardless of the cost to an associate club. The reserve rule itself is a usurpation of the player's rights. It is perhaps made necessary by the peculiar nature of the baseball business, and the player is indirectly compensated by the improved standing of the game. I quote in this connection Mr. A. G. Mills, ex-president of the league and the originator of the national agreement. It has been popular in days gone by to ascribe the decay and disrepute into which the game had fallen to degeneracy on the part of the players, and to blame them primarily for revolving and other misconduct. Nothing could be more unjust. I have been identified with the game for more than 25 years, for several seasons as a player, and I knew that, with rare exceptions, those faults were directly traceable to those who controlled the clubs. Professional players have never sought the club manager. The club manager has invariably sought and often tempted the player. The reserve rule takes the club manager by the throat and compels him to keep his hands off his neighbour's enterprises. It was not to be expected that club managers of the stamp above referred to would exhibit much consideration for the rights of players. As long as a player continued valuable he had little difficulty, but when for any reason his period of usefulness to a club had passed he was likely to find, by sad experience, that baseball laws were not construed for his protection. He discovered that in baseball, as in other affairs, might often makes right and it is not to be wondered at that he turned to combination as means of protection. In the fall of 1885, the members of the New York team met and appointed a committee to draft a constitution and bylaws for an organization of players, and during the season of 1886, the different chapters of the National Brotherhood of Ball Players were instituted by the Mother New York chapter. The objects of this brotherhood as set forth by the constitution are to protect and benefit its members collectively and individually, to promote a high standard of professional conduct, 
to foster and encourage the interests of the national game. There was no spirit of antagonism to the capitalists of the game, except in so far as the last might at ally time attempt to disregard the rights of any member. In November 1887, a committee of the Brotherhood met a committee of the League, and a new form of players' contract was agreed upon. Concessions were made on both sides, and the result a more equitable form of agreement between the club and players. The time has not yet come to write of the effect of this new factor in baseball affairs. It is organised on a conservative plan, and the spirit it has already shown has given nothing to fear to those who have the broad interests of the game at heart. That it has within it the capacity for great good, the writer has no manner of doubt. And thus the erstwhile schoolboy game and the amateur pastime of later years is being rounded out into a full-grown business. The professional clubs of the country begin to rival in number those of the halcyon amateur days, and yet the latter class has lost none of its love for the sport. The only thing now lacking to forever establish baseball as our national sport is a more liberal encouragement of the amateur element. Professional baseball may have its ups and downs according as its directors may be wise or the contrary, but the foundation upon which it was built, its hold upon the future, is in the amateur enthusiasm for the game. The professional game must always be confined to the larger towns, but every hamlet may have its amateur team, and let us see to it that their games are encouraged. End of Introduction